I love the time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I love being at malls around Christmas time. Not to have to buy anything. No, that no. I'd rather go uh, strip floors or something. But just to be there, and I don't, I'm, you know, I'm a sucker for for decoration and eye appeal and everything else, and Christmas music and all of that. And when it comes to Christmas time, I'm always, for 24 years that I've been here, I've been betwixt and between because my habit in preaching is always to just take a book of the Bible and go through it. And holidays come and go, and I still, with relatively few exceptions, I stick right to whatever the book is that we were we are in and have been in. We've been in the book of Philippians. So, but Christmas, I mean, Christmas and Easter, those are two times, you know, when you sit there and you go, at least I do. I go, mm, I don't know. You know, everybody does the, the, and I don't mean any any diminution of, of the passages at all, but everyone goes to the classic Christmas passages. And I understand that, and I understand why. But you understand that this entire book two-thirds of which is before Jesus came into the world. It's before Christmas came. And there's a good reason for that. So this morning I'm going to go, not to probably one of the classic Christmas passages, but to a merry Jewish Christmas passage from the Old Testament in 2 Kings. I want to give credit where credit is due. There's a lot of uh, things in the news lately, especially this summer, about pastors and plagiarism. And as we were getting ready to go to Minnesota just a few weeks ago to see our Minnesota grandchildren, I, of course, had forgotten to take the book along to read on the plane that I had intended to. And so we stopped in Boston because we were flying out of Boston at my daughter's house and asked her if she had any books that I could take and read and, you know, whatever could she recommend and all that because I'm pretty picky on what I read. And she said, well, I have some uh, Tim Keller books, and I love Tim Keller. I've only actually read one of his books, um, which was outstanding. But I'm very familiar with him. I like his style. He had some brilliant insights on some well-worn passages, and she gave me the book called uh, Counterfeit Gods by Keller. So I took that on the plane with me. So this is full disclosure that this morning, probably more than a preacher proclaimer, I'm a parrot. And really the the pretty much a, a lot of the ideas here this morning and all that I'm going to talk about from 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19 come from Tim Keller's book, counterfeit gods okay so just to be fair on all of that the passage in particular as a lot of passages are in the old testament is called historical narrative that is it's a it's an actual historical true account of something that occurred in history but understand that the 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 beauty of historical narrative in the old testament isn't just to bore us with historical details and facts and figures and names and battles and places and towns and cities and all of that. But it is to be used by God with a view toward Advent and all that that meant for mankind. 
And this morning, I think you're going to see a classic representation of all of that. I want to start this morning by looking at, again, 2 Kings 5, 1 through 19. And in before we begin, I just want to give you a very brief setup of the key players uh, that are involved here in this historical narrative. The players are Naaman, Naaman, who is the captain of the king of Aram's army. Aram is what is current day Syria. Naaman is the king, uh, the captain rather, of that king's army. The king of Aram himself, who is nameless, is Naaman's boss. Just want you to remember that. And then we have the king of Israel. And then we have a no-name little Jewish girl slave. Those are the key figures here. Let's look at verse 1. Now, Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected, because by him the Lord had given him victory to Aram. The man was also a valiant warrior. A little pause here. Understand that when the garden was violated, I'm referring to the Garden of Eden. And by violated, I mean when Adam and Eve, the prototypical family, first family born into the world, sin-free, when they were in the garden, they chose to do their own thing and rebel against God, knowing better than God. That's what I mean by when the garden was violated, sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, the world was turned upside down, releasing everything we know today of all of the dysfunction and the disease and the despair and the natural disasters and catastrophes and animals eating animals and poisonous pests and insects and all of that is a result of sin. But I want to focus just for a minute or at least just in passing on the idea here of when the garden was violated, maladies, meaning diseases, were released into the world that no one can cheat no matter how diligent any person is to attempt to stay ahead of the game in their life. I can use myself as an example. <clears throat> but I know I want to use an even more profound example of that. This summer I called to make an appointment with my urologist, and which I got, and a few weeks later they had to call me to reschedule it because my urologist, who I would say is probably early 40s, himself a cyclist and in absolute top physical condition, they said he's out on medical leave for open-heart surgery. When I ended up seeing him just a couple of weeks ago, he said, you can't cheat genetics. <laughs> I said, no, you can't. And you can't cheat the sin that turned this world upside down, even at the genetic level. Nobody can escape it. Well, here we have Naaman. Naaman was the consummately successful guy. He was wealthy. He was acclaimed, he was respected, he was a decorated warrior, but he wasn't just, you know, this, this Arnold Schwarzenegger type, you know, uh, a brute of a man. He was a trusted advisor to the king of Aram, according to verse 18, at any rate. But, the rest of verse 1, but he was a leper. Now, briefly about leprosy, one of those diseases, maladies released into the world, so to speak, when, when sin entered the world, the garden was violated, caused by a little bacteria that we can't even see without aid of a microscope and stains called Mycobacterium leprae. It is a nasty disease. 
I can't say there's good diseases, but there's, it's a nasty disease because it, just, it doesn't just kill you quickly. In those days, too, it was 100% fatal. But it was a slow, slow lingering process where the bacteria would eat away your circulatory aspects and causing circulation to decrease to your appendages first so that things literally started rotting away off your body. So people might be out there one day, you know, with bandages and stuff, and pull the bandages off and the finger comes off with it. Don't mean to gross you out or anything. But that was leprosy. The nose, eaten away. Ears falling off. That's leprosy. So it was the death sentence, but it was a nasty, hideous disease. In spite of all of Naaman's qualities and his renowned greatness, he was a dead man walking. But what was as bad, maybe even worse for that leper, is that it wasn't just the sentence, as I said, of a slow, grotesque, disfiguring death. It was that the moment it was known that you were a leper, no matter who you were, you were now and untouchable, meaning you had to be isolated. You were an unsociable. You had to be separated for the sake of the welfare of everyone around you so that you were an outcast, lest others contract the disease. In verse 1, our story begins with this renowned warrior, politician, exiled because of a microscopic warden. And the narrative moves, moves very quickly, if not awkwardly, at verse 2. There's an abrupt change of the story in verse 2 and the focus. We might, it might seem to us as poorly written literature. Because there's really not much flow or, there, or, or not much continuity. But remember, these historical narratives are as inspired by God as the words of Jesus himself. The purpose of historical narrative, as I've already mentioned at the introduction, is not to fill the function of bedtime stories or entertainment or casual reading. The purpose of narrative is the revelation of God to mankind concerning his provision of the solution to mankind's fatal disease called sin. And a sin which separates everyone from God's presence in heaven. Verses 2 and 3. Now the Arameans had gone out in bands and had taken captive a little girl from the land of Israel. And she waited on Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master were here with the prophet who is in Samaria. Then he would cure him of his leprosy. This is so utterly strange in its disconnected flow from verse 1. It's strange that we have this conflation of what is a much longer story, but the Holy Spirit has precise purpose in doing so. The story isn't the story. The political struggles of enemies and of conquerings and vanquishing of peoples and kings and powers and taking over lands and territories is not the concern here. So what is the story behind the story that the Holy Spirit 
wants everybody to get. Verses 4 through 6. Naaman went in and told his master, remember the master is the king of Aram, saying, Thus and thus spoke the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Aram said, Well, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. He departed, and he took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shekels of gold, that's a chunk of change, and ten changes of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, saying, And now as this letter comes to you, behold, I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Again, Naaman's master is the king of Aram. Aram and the king of Aram and Naaman are the sworn enemies of Israel. And this sworn enemy of Israel asked the king of Israel for a big favor. An absurd favor, if you think about it. Remember who Naaman is. He's the king of Aram's number one man. He is an accomplished, experienced, valiant warrior with a long history of victories in battle against their enemies, of which Israel is one. But Naaman has a mortal illness. His days are numbered because of the leprosy. And on the basis of what, I'm just going to kind of put it in the category of rumor, of a little girl who has all kinds of reasons to hate Naaman, he nevertheless acts on her counsel. Under the leadership of Naaman, the Arameans again went into battle against Israel. And as the spoils of war, it was just the, the, the rule of the day, if you will, concerning battles and all that, the conquering king took people of their vanquished enemies, took them in to be their slaves. And those that they didn't take for slavery were either sold into slavery elsewhere themselves or they were killed. So this little girl is one who's been vanquished by the Arameans. And she's removed from her home. She's removed from her family. And her family was either, as I said, sold into slavery or they were killed. And this little girl is taken and put into slavery in the house of Naaman. The commander who led the raids on Israel leading up to her capture. Here's the million-dollar question. Why in heaven's name would she have any desire to help the very one who vanquished her people and the very one who keeps her now in bondage? Let me change this up a bit. Let's go back to the early days of the war in the Middle East against Al-Qaeda. And we know through intel that Saddam has, I'm making this part up, okay? But let's just say that we find out through until he, he has stage four metastatic cancer. Certain death. And CENTCOM receives a communique from Saddam's son, Uday, saying that he wants to turn Saddam over to American forces. We're like, yeah, good, hey, woo, got it. But he didn't finish. I want to turn him over to American forces for the purpose of getting him treated and then returned to his people. Verse 7. 
When the king of Israel read the letter from the king of his arch enemy, he tore his clothes, which was an outward symbol of grief to everybody around, and he said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? But consider now and see how he's seeking a quarrel against me. So the king of Israel is incensed, first by the sheer audacity of his enemy, but even more because he believes now and is convinced, and with good reason, that this is a setup by the king of Aram. How can it be anything but? It's not merely that he's being asked such a ridiculous thing, but what he's being asked is impossible for the king of Israel to deliver on. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man is sending word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? So what seems obvious to the king of Israel is that the king of Aram is setting up a pretense for war. The king of Israel knows he can't heal Naaman, so then the king of Aram can attack, and can attack feeling justified in his mind for doing so. Now let me go back to what might seem a bit part of the Jewish slave girl and her role in this narrative. Remember, she said to Naaman's wife, he should go see the prophet in Israel. He would cure him. Did Naaman take the counsel? Desperate men do desperate things. Now, Naaman, remember his high ranking? He is a member of the king's court and with the king himself being a very trusted advisor. And I get that, by the way. I'm not pulling this out of the air. It comes from verse 18 where the little phrase in Hebrew is used saying that the king was leaning on Naaman's arm at this uh, basically political gathering. This means that Naaman was not just the king's chief military strategist and war hero, but as I said already, he was functioning as Aram's prime minister. Pagan prime ministers don't go to seek the help of Jewish enemy prophets who worship a different god. But Naaman did. So, with head of state status and a big chunk of money and a personal letter of recommendation from the king of Aram himself, he's going to visit his Jewish peer, at least in his mind, his equal in status where he expects to flout both his influence and his wealth to buy his healing. I want to read a little snippet from Tim Keller's book, This is what Keller writes. The more I've studied this text over the years, the more I admire Naaman. He really was a good and accomplished person, but that only goes to show that the finest person in the world hasn't the slightest idea how to search for God. Let's not be too hard on him. He pulls strings, drops names, spends a lot of money, and he goes to the top. This is the way you deal with all important human beings, so why not deal with God this way? But the God of the Bible is not like that. Naaman is after a tame God, but this is a wild God. Naaman is after a God who can be put into debt, but this is a God of grace who puts everyone else in his debt. 
Naaman is after a private God, a God for you, a God for you. Oh, okay, sorry. Naaman is after a private God, a God for you and you, but not a God for everybody. But this God is the God of everyone, whether we acknowledge it or not. Verses 8 through 10. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent word to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? I was referring now to the king of Israel who tore his clothes, right? Because he's being asked to do something he can't do, and he knows they're just setting him up. Elisha the prophet, the man of God, says, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come to me, referring to Naaman, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Elisha is expecting or at least hoping that Naaman comes to see him and lo and behold, he does. But you have to understand that prophets are not high in the social standing of the structure of the day, generally speaking. When Naaman comes to Elisha's door, Elisha purposely disses the Mr. Godlike smarty pants so full of himself. See Elijah sitting on the couch, man, watching his satellite TV. Going, yeah, who is it? Oh, head of state? Hey, slave, give him my message. I'm busy. Ooh. And, of course, Naaman has a bit of an ego. And he considers himself one of the beautiful people. Someone the little people, such as Elisha, should be thrilled just to have the privilege of spending time with him. So even though he was just told what to do to be cleansed of leprosy, to be healed of his life-changing disease, to receive in all kinds of ways life again, to be restored to the community of the living His ego and his pride causes him to scoff at the very prescription that would be his, I use this word pointedly, salvation. Verses 11 and 12. Naaman was furious. And he went away and he said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I love it. This is so contemporary in so many ways. He continues his rant. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, where he's from, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? And so he turned away and he went away in a rage. What's Naaman's issue? He's looking for a snake oil salesman. He's not interested in the God of heaven. Naaman wants what he wants, and that's healing, period. He's boiling. (laughs) I hear Howie Carr show. You know who I am. (laughs) Those of you who know Howie Carr, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Instead, you send your servant 
to tell me to go wash in a river? Seriously? I got my own rivers where I come from, and I'm pretty sure that their waters are superior to the waters of the Jordan. And look, I paid you. I'm important. Now do your magic or dispense whatever prescription you have for me commensurate with curing a fatal disease. I don't have the sniffles. I have a hideous, slow, incurable disease, and that deserves at least some difficult, complicated, extraordinary feat and participation on my part. Here comes now the passage to underline in this historical narrative. Verse 13. Then his servants, Naaman's servants, came near and spoke to him and said, My father. You realize how risky this is, by the way? These are servants speaking to the guy who's just got a blink, and their lives can be taken and gone. His servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? The irony of pride and position. Naaman's servants get it. What you're struggling with, boss, is that the cure for your grave problem is too easy. fog is starting to clear in this narrative. If you had been told to go and get a mule and carry the mule on your shoulders back to our homeland, swimming across the Abana River with the mule on your shoulders, and then go and scale Mount Manipulation with that mule on your back, you'd have done it. Your perception of the mule thing is that it's nearly impossible. It would take an extraordinary man with an extraordinary will to pull that off, and such a man would certainly be worthy of being healed of an extraordinary disease. But my good master, don't you see that it's a greater feat to do something so commonly simple? Naaman didn't like it. He didn't like the prescription because it was contrary to his entire world view. It was contrary to who Naaman was and what he thought about himself and what he thought about everyone else. Everything, especially something so important as a life and death situation, had to be merited, had to be earned, had to be achieved. But God is a God of mercy who operates on grace, not works. As the sovereign creator of the universe, he is a God of mercy who operates on grace, not works. If the little girl had said, well, go off and bring back the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West, he'd have done it. 
Ooh, you liquidated her. Hail to Naaman, the wicked witch is dead. Sorry. If you were told to return the ring to Mount Doom and you'll be healed, that would have suited Naaman just fine. Wash yourself seven times in the Jordan. Waste of time. Load of rubbish. Too easy. Something so mind-bogglingly important and great as my healing from an incurable disease could not be that simple that anyone could do what was required. But you see, when you're a self-sufficient, skilled, accomplished, wealthy, and important individual, it is easy for self to become your idol. Coming um- humbly... <laughs> Coming. Some people do pronounce it that way. Annoys me. Coming humbly to the God of grace, admitting your insufficiency and your personal inability to truly fix anything of consequence, that's a difficult thing. You're like, okay, how long are we into this? I'm not feeling the Christmas vibe here, Pastor. Hang on. Let's go back now to the start of this narrative. And let's focus on that nameless little girl who had every reason to hate Naaman. We are so used to the message of grace from the gracious giver that it's easy to forget how costly such a gift is to the one giving that grace. How do you possibly square the remedy for Naaman's deadly disease coming from the very one who had been so grossly wronged and who continues to suffer as a bondservant and yet offers the provision of life-saving cure? That's not not just forgiveness. That is what I call practical forgiveness. Not to be confused with the game that we're all familiar with, what I call verbal forgiveness. Where you go, okay, I forgive you. And then you keep on plotting how to get revenge. What she learns rather, when she learns that Naaman has leprosy, the one who is the cause of this little girl's grief and heartache and separation from her family, possibly having seen her family killed before her eyes, and is now her master, she doesn't rejoice in his having a fatal disease. She offers God-inspired hope. And this sounds strangely like Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, which I conflate for this morning. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 says the same thing in other words. This is not 
easy. But the little Jewish slave girl trusted her God to be the judge of all and to deal with Naaman in his way, in his perfect way. And God's perfect way, really hear this, God's perfect way didn't remove the little girl from her situation of suffering. Yet her forgiveness of Naaman was certain and was not contingent upon her being released as a slave or anything else. Naaman's own servants said to him, again, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? And as the narrative progresses, Naaman, with more resignation perhaps than change of heart, listens to his servants. Verses 14 to 15. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan River, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Unless you have faith like one of these little ones, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. When he returned to the man of God with all his company and came and stood before him, he said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Hmm. We call this a testimony of faith. Uh, But is it? Maybe it's the same old man trying to earn his favor, trying to pay his way to get what he wants. Verse 15, he offers again the money that he brought for the miracle, which Elisha refuses. And in verse 16, we read, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. And Naaman said, Well, if not... Now catch this. This is Naaman. Remember who he is. Speaking to the lowly prophet Elisha, an enemy of Israel, in Israel. If not then, if you won't take my money, please now let your servant, he's talking about himself. Let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth for Your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon, third time, your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, referring to the king of um, of, uh, 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 Syria... Yeah. When he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon fourth time your servant in this manner. Elijah says to him, go in peace. The servant commanding the high and mighty general, prime minister, Arch enemy. 
go in peace. So he departed from him some distance. Did Naaman have a change of heart? Or was it just that, 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 that riotous joy one gets when they manage to tap into the prosperity God who, poof, like the magic genie, grants one's wish? Conquering warrior Naaman notes four times, as I said, that he is now his enemy's servant. Pride broken, arrogance discarded, gratitude rises to the surface and acknowledges what he knows is true. There is but one God, one Savior of mankind. In Naaman, we have the arrogant sinner condemned to death walking away from a cure that he deemed too easy, only to return and receive the gift of salvation, giving thanks with a grateful heart and a new life. In the little girl, we have the suffering servant who sacrifices her rights, freedoms, and justice for the sake of the despicable, scurrilous, undeserving one. Tim Keller notes, forgiveness always requires a suffering servant. The historical narrative of Naaman the leper is not a story of vanquished enemies. It's not a story of conquered lands and spoils of war. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ being lived out 550 years before the birth of the Redeemer, the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord on that first Christmas morning. And this passage in Second Kings is only one of a long train of gospel presentations in the Old Testament of what Jesus alluded to on the road to Emmaus, where we're told in Luke 24:27, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them, who? The clueless disciples, the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, which in that time was the Old Testament. And what was Jesus explaining? He was explaining to the disciples who he was and why the disciples should have known long ago that he was the suffering servant and why he had to come in order to cure the incurable, lethal disease of sin for unworthy wretches like Naaman and you and me. Forgiveness always requires a suffering servant. Which is why Jesus, going back to Philippians, he gets it in. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus forfeited all of his prerogatives and his rights 
as God. Coming as the bondservant, the suffering servant. To offer His grace to the undeserving. You and me. I finish with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, spoken to us in His Son. Meaning what? Two-thirds of the Bible in many portions, many ways, meaning in all diverse sorts of ways, the Redeemer hadn't come yet. Through prophets, through angelic visitations, through visitations of God himself in anthropomorphic uh, uh, pictures of, of God coming in human form throughout the Old Testament, even in conquering enemies and the words that they had and in judges who failed and all, in many and varied ways, God spoke and the purpose of it all was the coming redeemer savior and that christmas was yet down the road the old testament is replete with christmas stories which is why as i said last week when we were in the book of philippians christmas is a jewish holiday if ever there was one Like Naaman at the outset, though, many are missing it. Not all. For there are many Jewish Christians in the world today. They are called Messianic Jews. And they still keep some of the forms of Judaism, but those forms now are as they were intended to be. They are celebrated, they are reenacted, they are observed with all the meaning of pointing to the coming Messiah. And now as Messianic Jews, they can rejoice that the Messiah has come. That story blows me away. And I've known the, these connections in the Old Testament. For I mean, that are, the Christmas Eve services that I've done now here for 24 years was based on this whole premise. And if you're here Christmas Eve, you'll hear these little snippets from the Old Testament and how Jesus-centered and focused they were supposed to be foretelling of the day of Christmas morning long before Jesus was born. God's purpose ever has only been to bring the cure, not just for leprosy, not just for cancers, not just for all the diseases where you can fill in the blanks and everything else, but the cure of the singular originating problem that spawned them all and spawns them all, that being sin, was destroyed once and for all as that baby was born, grew into a man, suffered, died, but rose again, defeating sin once and for all.
that day is coming. Dear Jean and Dick and Shelby, that day is coming. When we will no longer. I don't believe we will have recollection of the nastiness of this sin-tainted world, for we will be captivated, beholding God in, in, I love the word, in the effulgence of his glory, unbridled, unsheltered, through no curtains, no veils, no fogs, just the fullness of God's glory. And if we have any recollection in any way at all, this is just my opinion, I believe it will be to say to ourselves, why were we so engulfed in it when we were in it. It is because we are human and we see now only by faith. But we are told the day is coming when what we know by faith we one day will see with our eyes. And that's when the difference is made. Then it will be written, referring to the return of Jesus, Oh, death, where is thy victory? Death, where is thy sting? Oh, Christmas is so much more than all the, the, the trappings that I love. The asinine movies that we call Christmas movies, many of which I love. <laughs> but let us as God's people firmly cling to what it's really all about. And don't be shy about sharing that. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>